Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest uh, is uh, my friend Sam Curry. So, Sam, if you want to give a little bit of background on yourself. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, background on myself, I don't know. I, I, I've been in cyber or something like it for about 30 years, and uh, I held senior roles at McAfee and RSA and Computer Associates and Arbor Networks and NetScout, et cetera, et cetera. So today I'm the Chief Security Officer for Cyber Reason. I'm the president of the federal subsidiary there. I'm also a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute, and I, uh, I'm glad to be here. So uh, hopefully we'll have a good conversation. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Um, as it happens, uh, it's you know we're, we're, we are recording this on, on on the Friday of Black Hat Week, so everyone everyone is uh, just arriving home on their red eyes. Uh, and <laughs> I'm one of those actually. I just I just got back uh, from Vegas myself. Yeah. Um. I did not go this year. Uh, you know, I, I, I just I have some things coming up and 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 didn't want to risk COVID uh, right now. Um, I, I I wish I did. I mean, I really I did. I seriously had FOMO. I, <laughs> you know, I I know a lot of cybersecurity people uh, actually don't like black hat. They, they like black hat. They don't like Vegas. Yeah, um, and I, I'm in I that happen, category. I mean, I happen to love Vegas. Um, and, and and I like black hat. So uh, uh, I really actually, do. I should I should I should give you some clarity on something. I don't like Vegas for work. Like I, I went there twice a year, every year from about 1997 until 2009. And and my my now wife, then girlfriend said to me, uh, you know, let's go to Vegas. I'm like, really? Vegas? You want to go to Vegas? Because right? it always been work for me and I'm either working or playing. I don't mix the two just because I like to keep my head down and be fresh or go party. And we went and we had a great time. But now I'm in the mode where if I go for fun, it's fun. And if I go for work, it's yuck. And in August, it's double yuck. Yeah, well, I could I could see that some. I mean, and I've I've been in the mode of traveling around to events and, and, and where, where my wife will be like, oh, you have this luxurious life. You're constantly traveling and going to these places and it's awesome and amazing. And I'm like, I literally don't see the outside of the hotel. I'm like, I couldn't tell you what city I'm in. It, <laughs> like, I went to Paris 11 times before I even saw the Eiffel Tower in the distance. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I and this is a true true story. I went to San Francisco 15 times before I actually left the district where Moscone is to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> like I didn't yeah. even go across the peninsula. <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know, we used to do these tours of, uh, you know, a executive tour of Europe, and that meant you'd you'd land in, in France on a Monday, right, on Monday night, something like that. You'd uh, go to bed, wake up, go to a meeting, go to meetings all day. Then you'd fly to Denmark on Tuesday night, go to meetings all day. Then you'd fly to Italy, uh, on on Wednesday, go to meetings all day. Fly to the UK, go to meetings all day, and then you'd fly home on. Thursday night, Friday morning. It's like, so what did you see? Well, I saw four hotels, three meeting rooms, um, four cabs, and the inside of an airplane and a bulkhead. Like, that's it. And people were yeah. like, oh, but you get to travel. I'm like, oh, really? Right, right. I know others aren't like that, but that that's 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 what my trips were like. That's so exotic. You know, you were in Paris and Italy and... <laughs> yeah, really. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, so so I, 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 am, I am a little sorry that I missed out. And I, and I actually had skipped... RSA as well. Um, uh, similar reasons, not not quite the same because I, I didn't have an impending trip. Like well, quite the same. RSA was very much like um, you know everybody had to have a vaccine, you had to get a, like a pass and everything. But but for Black Hat, they were like, nope, you know, come at your own risk, etc. 
it was a very different feel. So I think, I, and I had expected, I, I want to say RSA, I'm, these are not official numbers, but they, they, they hit like 60% of their pre-COVID attendance, right? They were, I think, 24, 25,000. Um, Black Hat last year had 6,000. They wanted to get 12. And I think when I left, they said they'd hit 19 or 20,000 people. So I quite, quite, a, quite a big deal. I heard it was huge. Um, for all of their uh safety measures you know asking people to prove vaccines or wear masks or i mean they, they didn't mandate masks but but um that seemed to be somewhat of a super spreader event i mean it it, it uh, oh i didn't i didn't know that i didn't actually i didn't track it that closely was I, it? okay so the polling i saw like you know someone did like an informal you know non-scientific poll on twitter that one i want to say came back at like 25 percent of the people and wow. of the people I personally know, like the conversations I had with people the week after uh, RSA, and, and and we're talking about, we'll say it's like, uh, I don't know, 15 people. Of those 15 people in my circle, it was 90%. Wow. You know, I had a lot of friends who, who got, and I went to both events so far, you know, knock on wood, I haven't gotten anything, but... I worry because I have an elderly father, an elderly mother-in-law, an elderly father-in-law, an elderly grandmother-in-law who's 98 years old that I see once a week. And so my fear, I mean, and not to mention the fact that I'm 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 in a, in, in an at-risk category. I, my fear is that I'm going to come back. I'm fine with me, but that they're going to get it, and that, that that's really bad, right? Uh, so I, what my, my rules when I go to these places are: I tend to do one-on-one -on -one meetings. Um, I don't usually wear the mask. I'm always washing my hands, but I don't go to the big groups. I, I'll do like a dinner with three or four people max. So I know that that's not very scientific, but I at least minimize contact. And if it's a choice between going to a party or watching Netflix in my hotel room, I, I go for Netflix. Well, and uh, the, you know, the CEO of my company, um, he, he didn't go all week, but he, he went in, he went in for like a, you know, a day. He was there like yesterday, I think. And, uh, but yeah, his whole thing was smaller meetings, preferably outdoors or you know smaller venues or whatever. Like not not and and like you said, that's not that's certainly not a foolproof method. But it's no, but it should it should have an effect in the aggregate, right? Like if everyone sort of going around licking doorknobs and stuff, that's one thing. But uh, if if people literally do try to distance, then I don't think you'll wind up with your. I, don't, I, don't I think it's a DEFCON thing. Yeah, you're totally right. That's like. It was like a 90 percent. It should be lower than that, you know. So yeah. Well, and uh, it, I also my, my wife and I were talking about this for uh, for for travel. You know, like you know, they they stopped mandating masks on on airplanes, and you know, so we've had some back and forth about okay, well, are are we still going to wear masks on airplanes? Um, and what we arrived at basically after kind of doing some research is we wear the mask for boarding and off, you know, getting on and getting off, because that's when everyone's walking past you, there's jumbles of people and stuff. And it's like, you know, it's like, well, once you're sitting in, in, in the planes in the air, it's like, you know, you just have the like, you know, three or four people that who are like directly adjacent to you. And I don't know, I, I don't know where the jury is at on, on how yeah. filtered the air is and how safe the, the, the recycled air is on an airplane. But uh, I do the same thing, but actually the airline I was on had a little video on how the air circulates in an airplane in the entertainment thing. So you could see, I don't know if that's a placebo, you know, if it's like right. uh, meant to make you feel comfortable, you know, if it's not security theater, maybe it's COVID theater or something, but uh, yeah. Well, so I did not go, you were there a couple of days. Um, 
you know, from the sounds of it, you know, you were in one-on-one -on -one meetings and doing other things or whatever, but you know, what was your, what was your general, uh, sense of black hat? Um, that it had an energy. Uh, it was certainly more than I think anybody expected it to be. There was the crowds were there. Uh, you know, I think I relayed the numbers to you just a minute ago that I, that I heard secondhand. Um, yeah, there was, a, it felt like Black Hat was back. And I think what that means is that RSA will be bigger and that, that things will return to normal, even if COVID hasn't effectively ended and may never. But uh, it seems that there's a new normal that's emerged and, and you could feel that. Um, there were lines at booths. There was, uh, the meeting halls were packed. Um, yeah, it felt like Black Hat of old. Well, I've seen, I've seen, Pictures of the Cyber Reason booth, and I know that the, uh, the Malicious Life hoodies are a, are a big draw. Massive draw, actually. We had lines going all over the place. One of our competitors sent a text saying, nice line, dude. And I was like, yeah, I get it. I mean, we all know each other, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah it was, but, but everybody was there in force, and uh, the hoodies were huge. Well, and, and, you know, the trick there, and not every, not every vendor pulls this off, but the trick is turning that line into conversations and leads like lots of people will show up for swag you can give away awesome swag and get a crowd at your booth but <laughs> the question is can you can you have a conversation that leads to a sale after that so we had we had uh so we had a uh the main center of the booth from one side was uh, almost like the guide ropes when you go into a club so people would line up there and they would get to a desk where there was uh um, like a, a press. So you, you, you right. go up, you get your hoodie, your shirt, whatever. Um, but the sides, as you left, go through demo areas and you could talk to people. And behind that, there was a theater and the theater was always packed. And so once people come through, they're in the center of the booth as they leave. I mean, they could go back. There were ways to get out. So you don't, you're not trapped or anything, but, right. but it meant that there were likely going to be interactions and people were there to have a conversation with you and see what you were interested in and listening to the conversation in line as well about what was interesting to people. Well, and that is a, there, there is a combination of art and science that goes into that from a field marketing perspective, because I mean, mm -hmm. as, as someone, you know, when I go to the events and I walk around, you know, like I literally, you know, um, do you know, do you know Melinda Marks? No, um, I think I know the name. Uh, now um, I feel bad. She's She'll be upset if I don't know her. She's an analyst at ESG now, but she was uh, she she oh. was handling marketing at uh, Qualys. Oh, I probably met her through John Olsick then at some point. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Um, well, she and I have been friends for a, a long, long time, and it's like one of our like RSA traditions is to you know get together and go go walk the floor and and oh. do, do a swank. I, but you're doing it. You're doing it with the eye of like how do they design these things? Well, that. But we also uh, when we were doing it, we were doing like swag sweeps for our kids, kind of you know like going through and saying, "Okay, oh, who's got the cool stuff?" Um, and and you know, so you'd go and you know, someone would have you know whatever fidget spinner or Rubik's cube or, you know, whatever it is that they had. And, and you'd be like, well, can I, you know, can I get one of these? And it's, it's interesting to see the difference between some, some booths could care less. They, you know, shrug, they, they don't even want to scan your thing. They're like, yeah, take the swag, whatever. Um, and then, you know, some are like, well, you have to sit through the demo. You know, you have, you have to have a conversation if you want the swag. Um, and I, most, I found, that, I found the swag gets more expensive at that point. You should draw should. from like, definitely like earphones like, or an iPad or something. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, if you want to give me a fun size Snickers or a, or a pen with your logo on it, like that, that shit better be just free. But, <laughs> but, right. but I'm not you know, sitting here for a Snickers bar. That's yeah. <laughs> But if you're, uh, yeah, if you're giving away, you know, whatever, you know, uh, you know, portable, portable speaker, that's, you know, ni nice or something, you know, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll listen to what you got to say. Um, 
but yeah, I think I th I feel like most I feel like probably half of the booths are just like let me just scan as long as I can scan and get the you know get get your contact info into our lead database, and those are the ones that I actually dislike the most <laughs> because I'm like like listen if you want if if you want to force me to listen to your 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 elevator pitch. I, I respect that. I mean, you're giving stuff away. You want an exchange. Yeah, you, want, you, want, that. you want to get your message out there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And if you're giving away, you know, cheap free stuff, I respect that too. But the ones who are literally just scanning to build a lead database, it's like, well, those aren't actually leads because then what happens is I get home from the event and I get a bunch of emails about, you know, thanks for stopping by the booth. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know you like <laughs> what booth <laughs> like, you'll, I'm like, you'll have to describe the swag to me. So I know what we're talking about. Somebody, somebody, I'm surprised somebody hasn't done this. Uh, just put a camera up with some really good software behind it to scan QR codes at a distance. No one will ever know. Like, did you come by the booth or didn't you? I mean, just then have then have meaningful interactions. I shouldn't suggest stuff like that, actually. But yeah. Ultimately, though, like I said, you know, there there is a there's an art and a science to the whole thing. There's a balance to be had of mm. you know, you know, even just every website I visit, you know, is like you know take some info and all of a sudden I'm getting emails from people I didn't ask for emails from, oh, you know, and then, and then when you, and then when you go to unsubscribe, yeah, yeah. And when yeah. you go to unsubscribe, they're like, well, you know, why are you unsubscribing? And I'm like, because I've never heard of it. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> Actually, usually one of the options is because I didn't ask for this uh, when you do it. But the other thing is I'm convinced that a lot of those things, the spam guys, the unsubscribe doesn't unsubscribe you. It just says, I really exist. And then it gets worse. That's, you know, not not to go political, but that's how I feel. Like somewhere along the line, someone has, because it wasn't me, some, someone has <laughs> added my 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 email address or info to various uh, Republican and Trumpian lists. And well, I've, got both. I've got both. I've got I've got I've got the, the Democrat lists and the Republican ones. And I see them come in and, and it's interesting to see how they play off each other. Right. I definitely do have both. And I and I've unsubscribed from both because I've like on the on the Democrat side, I'm like, look, you know, my 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 own personal feeling is I'm like, quit asking me for money. Like, yeah, you, they, they, the, ah. the pitch that you get, the pitch that you get always frames it like, look, if we can just get more money than them. Done deal. We're going to you know, we're going to get everything we that's, want. I believe that's a reflection of how they really think, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it might be, but that is not the way it works. And I'm no. like. I'm like, stop asking me for money. Go do something. Write a write a bill. Vote. <laughs> I don't know. Like, well, they have machines, and this this is the machine, right? The machine produces the money, and the money gets the ads, and the ads supposedly have a have a measurable effect, or they wouldn't do it. It's the same thing as like, why does phishing happen? Well, because somebody somewhere is falling for it, and enough times, and same thing with spam, enough times that it makes it worthwhile because the cost to send an email out is negligible. Right, but the difference, I said, you know between the Democrat side and the Republican side is I unsubscribe from the Democrat ones and that seems to work. Like I, you know, um, I, I stopped getting them. Yeah, actually that's true. I've noticed I that. Unsubscribe from I don't want to get, I don't want to telegraph a, a political, but yeah, I've noticed that too. And I've noticed that like, I just unsubscribed from three different Republican ones and I've got four separate new emails in my inbox this morning. Right. Well, it also, and actually this does tie in, this does tie in a little bit to Kind of a broader cybersecurity thing from from a information like a disinformation thing. Mm. There's there's you know there there's the the group of people. I mean, actually, any, anyone really. I don't want to classify a group of people. Should 
do some research like, you know, like and, and say, OK, I, I, I saw this story or I heard this thing. Let me go see if that's true. Let me dig a little deeper and, and, and form form an opinion on this. The challenge with that is. Search algorithms and and you know, the, the the sort of confirmation bias of search algorithms. So when I search for, you know, whatever the story is, I'm most likely going to see the stories that agree with me in the first place because the algorithm knows I like that. Um, yeah. And well, I, I have I have one strategy, but most people can't do this. And if they did it, maybe it would change. Uh, I have a friend who is the opposite, opposite political persuasion to me. And we're having a debate about, about public health care. Was it more or less efficient than private healthcare? And so we agree when we have these disagreements, we're going to go to scholar.google.com and look for papers for the data. Um, however, it seems that both sides of the political spectrum have different reasons for avoiding going to data. They're different, but they both yeah. have it. And, and that's that confirmation bias you're talking about. So, so we sit there, we have dinner every Friday night, you know, my, my wife and his wife and I, and um, when we go off political, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever guys. And then, and we'll say, okay, we're going to go look this up. And we, then we'll take two days or so to go look it up and we'll, we'll talk data, but that doesn't happen much anymore. And that's kind of no. sad. Well, Maybe not that, but something like that. On a previous podcast, uh, Dave Marcus and I talked about this and we talked about how, yeah, like it's almost like to have that conversation a valid conversation it's like i need him to come do his search on my computer and mm. for me to go do my oh, yeah. computer so that i can see what he sees and he can see what i see and and then compare i'm afraid of his that. bookmarks though that's my thing like I, I, yeah I well and yeah. the thing i was going to say though is that it's a good idea it's easy to create a network uh, and and they've done this like it, just, just like you have um you know, bots on Twitter that 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 like and share and 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 make it make it seem like this is a a more relevant post than it really is because it it's got all this activity that it's fake. Mm -hmm. But you can do that same thing with information. So you set up you set up a website that says cybersecuritynews.com. Well, it's got news right in the URL, so it must be legit. And then you just post whatever you want. So mm -hmm. now and it, so if you create a hundred of those. And they all cross post each other that adds to their domain authority. And yeah, so now it, they're coming it, it gets to a point where you go, I've seen enough evidence, even though it's the same thing being right. Right. So when you do the research, you say, OK, well, this must be legit. I've seen it on 15 different websites, you know, and 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 and, you know, and, you know, things like, you know, I, I, I'm sure there is a Democrat and like I, I, I'm sure there's a Democrat version of this. I just don't know what it is off the top of my head. But things like the Heritage Foundation is like. That's not a think tank. It's a propaganda mm -hmm. network, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. and it's something that it's something that sounds official and it sounds like legitimate research or whatever. So when when there's when you have this network of a hundred, you know, sort of fake news sites that are all self-validating each other, and then they all quote the Heritage Foundation and say, "Well, you know, there's this research." Um, so now, if my uncle goes to, you know, look up online and say, well, is this story true? He's going to find, you know, a hundred websites that say it is. So I had a teacher years ago, uh, an English teacher, who said the purpose of expository writing is, is so that you can, people can take issue with what you write. He said it's critical for a democracy to be able to put ideas out there for the purpose of being attacked. You're not putting it out there to be perfect. 
And and that reminds me, the spirit of, of a democracy should be one of skepticism, uh, which is kind of a scientific methodology, whether or not you believe in God, it's a scientific methodology. And I don't think and I don't think nearly enough people remember that. I don't know if the civics is being taught anymore. I certainly remember it was, um, you, know, uh, you know, believe very little, test everything. But a lot of folks are being told to discredit those sources. Oh, you can't trust scientists. Why? Because they, they all have a liberal bias. Or you can't trust uh, religious people. Why? Because they all have a religious bias. Like At some point, we have to say, uh, what is the methodology we're applying to these? Because it's so easy to see something and go, yep, that makes sense in my framework. And those are the things that neither side tends to question. Right. It leads to everything from, you know, um, wokeism on one side to, to some degree. And I realize there's propaganda even behind that term. And on the other side, it leads to, uh, you know, assumptions, assumptions about the role of government just immediately. Like people just, you know, and, and so everything gets cast through those lenses. Um, but you know that yeah. chart that goes around, I think they update it pretty much every year, but it's generally about the same. It's kind of the the parabola of news credibility. You know, it's like, oh, okay, no, it's like a like a like a like a sine wave kind of thing or kind of like, like the hype like cycle. The ones, the ones that are in the middle at the top are the ones that, you know, are the most credible, you know, and they like and it's 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 ranked on like. Oh, all you got to do then is grab it. All you got to do is grab airtime to get the impression that you're the in the middle right it's uh well, it's no, what you were talking I, about earlier if you get to enough I, points it seems like that's what people are saying. I mean, it, the 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 graph generally seems you know fairly legit like the things in the middle at the top are you know more like your nprs and your bbcs and then you know off on the wings are you know info wars and you know things you know and everything else yeah um yeah. things like that um i have you know i had a debate with a a cousin of mine a couple years back you know kind of like at, in, in the height of covid um about the do your own research like there was a you know the, like i i had shared something and he was like oh you got to do your own research and i said okay I'll, I'll i will humor that explain to me how you do your own research. not an immunologist not a virologist not a scientist <laughs> are going to do your own research you know and and we had this back and forth because i'm like you've already told me you inherently distrust that's it you every source, the scholarly sources, yeah, right. You every source that I would consider credible, you're dismissing out of hand. So, how, how exactly do you do your and and and? But you just, know, if you if you go to scholar google.com, I'm picking on that. There's many better scholarly indexes. When you find a paper, it brings up an abstract, and you can actually go see the paper. And you can, with a little training, you don't have to be a, a virologist or an immunologist. With a little training, you can tell. Is what I'm reading actually science? You, you can. And you can say, okay, how do they self-criticize in the paper? How do they say, where might I have got this wrong? How big is a sample size? Now, I mean, you don't have to be a scientist to understand it. I, you know, I know my domains of science. I'm in computer science and physics. Like, I got it. But I have enough of a basis as a, a lay people should be able to do this, to go read these things and look at a few abstracts and, and say, who are these people that are writing this? Now, people don't do that, though. And one of the criticisms on the right is that the left treats, quote, sources, government sources and science sources as if they were religious. And the left, the left absolutely will say to the right, you are literally treating it like religion. Right. But the, the truth of the matter is, there's less steps if you want to to go do it. And I'd be fine if someone said I did my own research because I went and pulled a couple of academic papers and let me share them with you so you can take a look at them. And that point I made earlier 
to for the purpose of criticism, for the purpose of being able to ask questions and be a skeptic. And I don't hear enough of that. I want to hear skepticism. When people say, I did my own research, I don't want to hear that they're skeptical of the results. I want to hear that they're skeptical of anything that's being said to them. Well, I think you made a hugely important point just now. And actually, I think this reflects back on your, your, your what you said earlier about you know, your, your kind of debates with your friend, which is don't just say, I did my own research as like a throwaway, like, okay, because you said that now I'm supposed to believe what you said. Like, you need to show me the research. Let's let's both look at your research and have that conversation. Like, how did you, you know, don't don't just tell me that you did it and now I'm supposed to believe you. Let's have a conversation about what that research is and 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 let's you know both look at the same thing. And by the uh, way, this came this comes up in security too. So passwords, right? What's the best way to make a password? And you ask any you ask 10 security people this question, they'll get at least 10 answers. But I, I saw a fascinating one, uh, point that came out from CISA recently and some guidance they gave, which was don't change your password too often. Like, really don't. Don't do it every 30, 60, 90 days. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That rekindles the discussion. Instead, we go back and we say, so why did we assume first it was that passwords had to be constructed this way? And then it was like passphrases and then which is right. the best mathematically versus the propensity for someone to retain it or for a machine to guess it or to mechanical Turk it, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get this don't change it very often. And then I go look at the rationale. This is like, you've got to go to the base and go, so why is this being recommended? In the case of CISA, they were saying, um, by forcing people to change it all the time, this becomes a rote action that becomes susceptible to phishing. And they're more likely to do bad, have bad habits when choosing new passwords. And so they're, they're you wind up likely. with a worse, a worse effective strength. You're more likely to, you know, write it down on a sticky note on your desk because it's like, okay, well, if I have the password that I've been using for five years, I remember that one. The one I created 30 days ago, I'm like, I don't, I don't remember what I- Oh yeah, the 24 digit one that I created, yeah. Right, you know, so there's that. I mean, when I was you know, way back in the day when I was a network admin and I implemented a password policy that you had to you know, update, update your password every month, I remember like immediately there was a, a, one of my users who just, and it had to have so many letters and it had to have a number. And they literally did January 1, February 1, March 1, you know, like, like that yeah, kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that is like, okay, I think you, 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 you've, you've met the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. <laughs> right. Well, we weren't designing it for the human being at the end. We were, you know, it's like one of, one of my pet peeves is, well, I had a good policy, but you know, the end user, it's like, no, stop. It's not a good policy if end users actually don't behave the way you want them to. Design the policy for how they really behave. And so this is why, like, I use that as an example because it, it's true in security as well. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, especially when we live in a world where, Entit where entitlements are too coarsely assigned and they're never very rarely revoked in the way they should be or when they should be, when machines are used with rogue apps all the time and there's rogue IT going on, um, it's really important for us to question the things that we think, okay, this is the best way to do it. Uh, having a conversation with an auditor, if you if you, if you you really show up and you, you've got something's done and something's not done, but you've got a rationale from a risk-based perspective that you can back up, say, I did these things to reduce risk, you know, the good ones will will be all over that in a good way. Um, it's very hard to argue when you're coming at it from a from a data based and scientific approach. And science is about getting it better. It's not about getting it right. Well, that actually ties in with the there's there's another cybersecurity angle on that, which is, and I had this conversation in in the, in, in the last podcast, 
Um, I'm, I'm formulating, uh, writing a story on best practices because I had this, mm -hmm. this thought one day where I was like, well, why are they best practices? Who decided that those are the best practices and how long have we just been blindly doing the best practices without stopping to analyze, are those still the best practices? Like you just kind of research has been done there. We should go look for that because uh, there should be a feedback loop. Hey, the companies that had this policy in isolation, they tended to do better against whatever it is over here or have less risk realized, except that we can't do it that scientifically. There's too many different factors that are involved. So I think, I think, I think a lot of it is consensus. Right. What, what what is the emerging view by the most people? But I think true the true best practices are all behavioral. They're all about how much how much you apply intelligence and rigor to improving, rather than to what are, what's any static policy. That's my guess. Yeah, and it's, and that's an opinion too. I'd love to see some data on it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I'm I'm. I'm always reminded of like, so once upon a time when I was on in, in the sales side of the world uh, and was, uh, you know, listening to uh, the Zig Ziglar's and the Tom Hopkins of the world. And Zig Ziglar had this story uh, about, um, I always call it the ham story, where he says, you know, it, the, the, this woman is making a ham and she cuts the ends off the ham, puts it in the oven. And the husband's like, well, why, why'd you cut the ends off the ham? She's like, well, it's just, just way, that's just the way you make it. That's the way my mom always made it, you know? And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you just wasted some of the ham. So they call up the mom and she says, well, mom, you know, we've always cut the ends off the ham. Why? And she says, well, I don't know. That's just the way we've always made it. That's the way my mom taught me to make ham. And they said, all right, well, let's call her. So they call up the grandmother and say, well, why, why do we cut the ends off the ham? And she said, well, <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have a really <laughs> small oven Nice. and the ham wouldn't fit. So I had to cut the ends off the ham. And, you know, uh, that's and that's a, it's a good example of, okay, everyone just kept doing it because that's the way it was done, even though the logic didn't apply anymore. Well, you know, uh, I think as a species, we're like that. We, we don't require, uh, I think there's an age, a lot of opinion coming, warning, warning, warning. I think there's an age where we can't stand hypocrisy. You know, it's that late teen, early adult years. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, in a universe where there just aren't absolute answers, I think we probably evolved to be able to have multiple points of view on something. In other words, to be hypocrites. We can have a point of view A, and it works, and we have a point of view B, and it works. And we hold so many of these that we rarely go back and question them. And I think it's very human, uh, and it probably was a survival advantage at some point, but it also leads to this weird ritual behavior um, and this carrying on. I saw this in the context of uh, culture. This happens with, with corporate cultures. Um, I heard this analogy, and I wish I could tell you where it came from, but but it was an analogy of uh, have you heard have you heard about the 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 gorillas in a cage? There's a ladder and there's a banana on the top. Do you know this one? No. Well, what do the gorillas do? They go for the banana, right? So, please forgive. No animals were hurt in making this analogy, but they 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 turned on water cannons or whatever, and the gorillas get back off. They don't do it, and then you take a gorilla out, and you put a new gorilla in, and every time they go for the banana, you turn on the water cannons. But after a while, they don't turn the water cannons on if you take a gorilla out and you put a new one in and it goes for the banana, the other gorillas stop it, right? They beat it up. They, they won't let it go. Eventually, you can replace every gorilla and the behavior continues. That was the analogy. I don't know how true it is or where it came from, but as a thought experiment, it's like, hmm, culture persists like that. We do this in security, but we do it in, in, in just about everything we do in corporate, in corporate culture. And uh, yeah, I think we have, to, we have to ask why a lot more often because a lot of this baggage 
slows us down. It makes us less efficient. It it makes it more difficult to do things. Yes, and to accomplish things. Kind of the 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 origin of my thought on that was looking at like newer or you know like innovative or emerging concepts in in security where it's like there's this default you know the best practices are well you you have to have endpoint protection you have to have a firewall you have to have idea or like whatever like you know, those are like if you come into a company as the as the CISO like you you better at least do those three things you better um, respect you better respect the things we're doing yeah yeah right and and but then I'm like okay but there's new things you know the 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 you know i mean zero trust isn't really new but you know like well you know maybe that's a thing or deception technology or you know there's new ways to to that, that come out that have a hard time gaining traction because you're already doing things the way you're doing them and then there's an inertia to that as well of whether you know once you've made that investment you know whatever whatever you've made the investment in the inertia is to just keep renewing that yeah, yeah. Or, or or even if you switch vendors but to replace it with the same thing um there there is no there's no um incentive or very little incentive to actually stop and go okay should i keep doing that well there's disincentive actually so it's like well you threw out this antivirus vendor you threw out this identity vendor you threw out this firewall vendor you put in this experimental thing and something went wrong went wrong what's the most obvious thing to blame um uh, my favorite is dlp by the way I, I have been involved with DLP since before it, when it was just a twinkle in the eye of a developer I knew. And um, I have to say, most of the time, it doesn't have much security value. I mean, it really doesn't. And so do you leave it on everywhere? At what point do you turn it off? Uh, which you really got to know, what are you really worried about? Now, if you're in a highly sensitive environment where the leakage of any kind of information could be national security, for instance, of any sort, uh, that's different than if you're in a typical software company and you're, you know, the worst transgression might be that, well, an, an employer employee leaving is going to take some source code. And by the way, we have an open source product. Do you, how much do you care about that? Right. So I, I make sure that every one of my policies has a means for it to be turned off, a means for approval, acceptance of risk. So in my case in DLP, if the C, if the person requesting it and the CISO sign off, you can turn it off for up to 90 days. Why? Because there's absolutely circumstances in which DLP could totally destroy a business. Right? And you mentioned, you mentioned zero trust, which is another thing. Um, it's funny because I think, I think zero trust requires fundamental architectural changes. And it's really about least trust rather than zero trust because you never get to zero. So it's sort of like a limit approaching zero. Right. But I mean, I, the I've closer always, you I get to it, the harder it is, the more yeah, difficult, I, the more you're going to break. I've always maintained you know, for, for the decade plus that I've been talking about zero trust um, that it's not like it's not like a new thing in a vacuum. No, it's, it's just not, an evolution no. of least privilege. At least privilege and least function. That's the other one. Right. It's like how, how often does a manufacturer say, well, I need an operating system. Let's take one off the shelf that we've been using for the last 10 products that rolled out the door and just slap it in here. Does it need a telnet client? No. Does it need an FTP server? No. But where they're going to be in there anyway. So it's all, it's least trust and it's least privilege, but but you've also got to be careful that in the provisioning of some trust, right? If we define trust as is the granting of an entitlement to someone or something, you have to do that for transactions to happen. So you so how do you do that in the least privileged way possible? You've kind of got to have a, a system or a service that's going to do that. That's another attack surface. 
So you've got to be really careful because that attack surface also requires trust. So even the limiting of trust requires the creation of more complexity and new new trust topography, if you will. So it, 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 that's why I say it's a, it, it, this is one of those things you squeeze the balloon and it bulges in ways you may not expect. And it's about least trust. And that in itself is only really useful if it leads to less risk. Right? Just least trust for its own sake is going to introduce some business interruption. What's the value or it lost to that business interruption as compared to the value gained in the risk reduction? Right. Well, and I think that ties in with there are a lot of things that from a purely technical sense, they make sense and they work for security, but there needs to be you you have to apply context and and, and logic on top of it. Um, so like, and that's where, you know, and I think that's, that's one of the things I, I appreciate about like the, the cyber reason malop and stuff is like, okay, there are things that in, you know, you might look at it and say, okay, by itself, you might look at something and say, okay, that's an inherently malicious action, but there's a lot of actions. Most actions are just actions. They're just things that happen in a, in a network or on a computer. Absolutely. They don't mean anything by themselves. You have to step back and apply a level of context to say, okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. But when you put that all together, that seems malicious. Yeah. So if you look at like the MITRE attack framework, um, ping is in there. Ping. And and I, I know a few people. When you really go through, it, you're like you start chuckling when you see that. It's because you can have a sequence that's malicious made up of things most likely to be benign. In other words, hey, this thing probably good. This thing probably good. This thing probably good. But this sequence, this chain of behaviors that is probably very bad. And it's this probabilistic world that's very difficult for us in security, right? We, and, and I think culturally this ties into the, the, the office of no, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 the CISO is Dr. No. He or she is always there saying, nope, you can't. But we have a fetish in our industry of saying right now, in this moment, good or bad, make a decision. If you say yes to it and it's bad, we're done. The business is over, right? Crunchy perimeter. If you say no and you're wrong, the CIO is is prowling the halls or in, a, in work from home, they're cruising past your house with a knife because they're going to do you in for taking everything down. And that's the difficult thing. It's this, you said the word context. It's absolutely vital. A malop is, a, is really a sequence of things that is now convicted of being bad. It reaches a point where it's past that it could be good. And it is exceedingly unlikely to be good. And so that that's what we've got to get into the mindset of that. It's not just in the moment, because humans are so innovative, they will use the tools in place. They will find ways to look and to use benign things most of the time. Right. Well, that's the key. That, that's, that if, if, I'm, if I'm on the other side of this fence, if I'm in the, you know, the, the cyber criminal ecosystem and I'm a threat actor, I'm absolutely going to look for those things. Like, why, you know, oh, yeah. I'm not why gonna, wouldn't you? I'm not going to, I'm not going to just bash the door in because you're going to know that, you know, I'm going to find a way to, to, you know, I'm going to use what you're using. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know. And if it's working anywhere in the ecosystem, word gets around, tools get around. It's not like there's anything going, oh no, I'm a, I'm a fisher. I, I wouldn't touch that tool, even though it's very effective. No, no, it's, look, look how, look they're how, intelligent. Look how much threat actors use, you know, PowerShell. They're like, well, thank you, Microsoft. You gave us, <laughs> you gave us an entire framework of, of code that we can execute. Exactly. And, and, and by the way, you could do a ranking of what is the most powerful, most ubiquitous tools, and that's where they'll go to, especially if those tools are, are powerful precisely because they're used for benign things and they're used by IT departments and by admins. 
Um, the only the only exception to the pragmatism we've talked so far is that to some degree security has to be the tenth man or tenth woman. We have to be the ones that are sitting there and saying, we have to be the voice of no sometimes, even if it's just devil's advocate. But aside from that, the, the, it, we need to get back to being pragmatic. And I think the best best practice, what you were asking about earlier, is having this always returning to fundamentals and thinking about those trade-offs. If you do that, I think you're among the best in the world because it's about how fast you improve. And we are here to serve the business. It's also about how much the business is willing to accept risk. So that that's the best practice, best of all. There was, um, I'm blanking now on what the book was, but there's a book I finished recently. And one of the things he talked about in there was, um, you know, like you, 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 you go into a meeting to, to present an idea and you talk about all the reasons that this is a good idea. Um, and he said that he would stop people then and say, okay, I want you, now I need you to tell me what could go wrong. Why is it a bad idea? And that, that stops people in their tracks. They're like, I don't know. I, I came here to make a case for why you should do it. You know, I, I only thought of the good things. And he's like, well, no, we have to, you have to ask the other question. And so I literally wrote that down and put that on my desk because when I'm making decisions about anything, but like, you know, about, you know, content marketing decisions, even it's like, okay, I've, I've come up with all the reasons that I think I should do this, why it's a good idea, what the return will be, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let me stop and ask myself the question, why should I not do this? So this 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 is important. I think not all cultures can do this, but they should strive for what 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 I've heard called and call myself commit, but uh, object, but commit, meaning you're in the room. Actually, I'll, I'll rephrase it a different way. I'll say it. If you're sitting somewhere and you want to look smart in front of your peers, you don't want to make a mistake. Well, that's the first problem, right? Um, you can't be defensive. You can't be trying to turn up with the right answer. We tend to want to find the thing that's going to make it true or make it false. So I just came back from Black Hat, and this has been happening for years at Black Hat and at other, other conferences. You sit in the room and someone says, I have found this awesome architectural way, and everybody gets excited to do something. And then one person finds a problem, and then everybody gets dejected, right? Like, Oh, you know, we, we, we've come to in, we've come to deal with this problem and we hit one obstacle. So we all just go home. Well, no, ideas are made better with constructive criticism. So to some degree, you've got to have this. I'm finding problems. I'm actually for it, but I'm finding problems so that we can make it better. And that yeah. is tough. Um, I mentioned the 10th man or 10th woman argument. That's the responsibility of someone in the room to be the voice that goes the other way but not for the purpose of shooting it down and finding a silver bullet to take it out. It's to make it better, to make it so that you don't have a blind spot. And yeah, you know what, if something shouldn't be done to find that too, it's a terrible responsibility, but it, the more people that do it, the more we have these conversations, the better. We, but we live in a world where, okay, let's imagine somebody raises something. Okay, you're asked for your opinion. Now you say something positive about how it might go and you're proven wrong, you look like an idiot. You look like an idiot. But if you say something negative and you're wrong, nobody remembers. It went well. Everyone's happy. Hey, you know, Sam might have had an objection, but he was just raising a concern. Concern is always taken seriously. Optimism is always seen to be foolish. I was going to say, you, you just described my my perception of like analysts in general, like whether oh, they're yeah. financial analysts or industry analysts or whatever. It's like, you know, the people who who tell me 
well, what's going to be in the next iPhone or, you know, what's, what's, you know, uh, you know, oh, how be very are going to go? It's like, very much. Yeah. it's like they're wrong 95% of the time. And then the one time they're right, they, you know, you, you they, that, that's their reputation for the next five years. It's like, well, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, you got that thing, right. But they like, can't afford to be wrong, wrong about something optimistic. Like I think the next version will be so earth shattering and it will be really cool and help artists. And then it doesn't, and you people reread this and it doesn't age well. You look like a, like a moron. But if you say, I'm not expecting very much, I don't think there'll be a huge improvement. And there is, okay, you can say, great, we're all happy about that now. Right. Yeah, it's sort of like, a, it's an, a, let's call it the analyst's wager, right? And, and you know who gets ahead in that world? It's the one who's making the more negative predictions over time. Yeah. They get listened to. We like to listen to those fears. Well, but I mean, again, psych, to some degree, the security person has to be the voice of that. Because uh, we are supposed to be the voice of risk, among other things, right? We can't just be, hey, I think that's great. Off you go. We have to be thinking, how could it be used against us? Yeah. Well, and, and like I said, I, li I like that so much that I wrote it down because I think that that should be used more. I think, you know, when you're having these conversations, even if everyone in the room agrees and you say, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. Everything you said makes sense. It's like, OK, well, someone just stop and say, OK, but what could go wrong? Like, why, why, why would we not do this? So that you're mm -hmm. at least aware of you know, that it's not a silver bullet there. It's not a, it's not a magic thing that's just going to work. It's like, you do need to be aware of, well, what, what are the downsides to this? Where, where, where could we fail? About, about eight years ago, um, I was in a newly minted CISO at a, at a company and you can go look it up on LinkedIn who it was. Um, I didn't do very well there actually, uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the company was looking at moving to AWS at the time. And so I read through this paper and I enumerated some risks and the CFO got this paper and said, Sam Curry says we can't move to AWS. And that was not what I had said. And so he called the meeting. I said, guys, no, 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 no. You have to accept these risks. By the way, if you don't, you have to accept these risks. Let's have a conversation about what you want to do. The other mistake that I made about this, so I was perceived as Dr. No, right? But the other mistake that I made was every time security came up at the senior levels of the company, the sort of C level, I leapt on it. I leapt on it like a hungry dog on a bone, just like, this is mine. I got this. Like, stay away. And every time a business thing came up, I didn't. Now, what I should have done was the opposite. I should have been encouraging other people to be concerned about security and ask them their opinions and stayed back from, because everybody knew I was the smartest security person in the room. What was I trying to prove? Right. Right. And instead, I should have jumped on everything that wasn't security to demonstrate I was a business person. And I didn't do enough of that. So my, I, I often advise CISOs, pay attention to the things that have nothing to do with you and be present as a business person in the conversation and give a breather so that other people can chime in about their concerns on security issues. And don't say good point or you're right or you're wrong. Uh, you know, instead, let them have it out and, 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 and reserve judgment. Otherwise, they're going to look to you for approval on everything and they're not going to have a sense of ownership. When you're right, so you got to get them into security. Yeah, in, in your defense, in, in defense of your your evolution and maturity on that subject, I feel like the, that that mirrors the entire industry. You know, where like a decade ago, it was much more security was was draconian, and security is like I'm here for the sake of security. And there has been an evolution of security to be like, no, we need to be we we are here to safely facilitate business. And I think that the thing that you just you just talked about is is the key, which is the goal of security, in my opinion, the goal of security isn't to block, prevent, secure 
everything absolutely i mean there are ways you could do that just disconnect your computer from the network or what you know like <laughs> um but Turn it's it, it, it is all about risk management and risk acceptance that's the fundamental of security it's like i'm not i'm not telling you i'm going to protect you from everything what i'm trying to tell you is these ways are a little bit safer than these ways for these reasons there are consequences either way you know here's the risk now we can we can try to mitigate the risk we can try to minimize the risk but ultimately there will always be risk we're just trying to figure out which one do we want to take the other thing i do and this is i don't know if this is the best practice but uh it's helped me is uh, some of my colleagues after a while, they start to, you know, I hear in their voice, the phone rings three or four times instead of once or twice or maybe five or six times. And they come in and go, hi, hi, Sam. And you know what they're thinking? They're like, uh, what did I do? Or what's gone wrong? So I also make a point of, of calling when I have ideas for them. I know I'm naive in their domains to some extent, um, but I'll call them up a few times for every time I have to call and be like, so uh, we have an issue with your department or with you, right? So that they're not like, oh, huh, Sam's calling, because then they're not going to want me present, right? I've right. got to be a business person. Bro, if you're always the harbinger of doom, nobody wants to oh, take yeah. home. Yeah, the, the, the legal counsel's like, hey, hey, hey Sam, um, everything everything okay? Um, love them, but that, that's what happens, right? So you've got you've got to call for other things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, well, I wanted to kind of start trying to wind things down, but um, you know, what's, what's, uh, is there anything on the horizon for you? I mean, I feel like the, you know, the, the next you know, event wise, the next thing mm. to me is, is basically, well, no, I was going to say it's RSA, but it's not, uh, it's the, it's the Houston security conference. Uh, yeah. And I there, mean, there's some smaller ones that happen in the fall as well, right? There's, there's, there's a, there's a big one in mass. We have the cyber week that's happening. There's some industry shows like the, the regional ones. There's sometimes a company show. Um, I think the biggest thing that's going to happen is we're going to exit the doldrums of summer where we're also going to say, what's next and what's going to happen? And uh, it's not just back to school, it's back to work in many ways, especially in places like Europe. We're going to have this September is always a crunch month and nobody ever remembers it's because July and August were slow and people are facing the end of their years and they got to get things done before October, November. So I think we're going to see a crush of getting stuff done. And for me, the big issues to be resolved are still outstanding, like what happens with the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Um, you know, that's a biggie. Uh, what happens over Taiwan, those things, and they have a ripple effect. So it'll be an interesting autumn, I think. Well, I want to thank you for joining me. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll, you know, like I said, RSA would probably be the next opportunity I would have where we would both be in the same place, but uh, uh, theoretically. Hey, if something comes up, I'm happy to talk, and hopefully I'll see you before RSA. Awesome. All right, take care. Take care. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.